The Octarine Tree, a podcast exploring the meaning of ecology, spirit, and human relationship. From Southwestern Australia, I'm your host, Byron John. G'day, mob. Welcome back to the Octarine Tree podcast. I hope you all enjoyed your Easter break where we celebrate the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth by telling our children that a giant rabbit came and hid chocolate eggs in the night. Today's episode is part three of my solo ranting about the relict hominoid hypothesis, relict hominoids, and what on earth it could be. So in the first two episodes of that, this series, I, the first one I introduce the, the hypothesis as it stands that these beings that are told of all around the world in all different cultures throughout all different times, known as Sasquatch, Yeti, Yowie, and so on, they may be relict populations of what were once thought to be extinct species of hominins and hominids great apes and homo sapiens relatives. In the second episode, I discussed the natural history of hominins and hominids in Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Australasia, and focused in on the possibility, the scientific plausibility, that a non-extra sapiens hominid species may have crossed the Wallace line and entered the Australian mainland before or parallel to Homo sapiens doing so some 65,000 years ago. In this final and third talk on relict hominoids, hominids, I delve into the stranger, more metaphysical and mythopoetic aspects of this subject, asking the question, basically, if this isn't indicative of a flesh and blood biological species, most likely a relict hominid, then what is it? What's going on? Because I stress that the law surrounding this subject is deep and vast. I asked anthropologist Scott Kane on last week's episode if he had heard anything about it in his travels and I was surprised to hear that it's all but ubiquitous. Even I thought that, you know, he'd probably chuckle and say he's heard it a little bit here and there, but he said that it's virtually every, every community he has worked with in Australia for the last 40 odd years has this myth or this story, this law. Uh, so what's going on? If this isn't a f- indicative of a flesh and blood organism, what's going on? What is the symbolic resonance of this creature, these creatures? Is is it archetypical? Is it genetic memory? What do they represent? And I kind of explored, I didn't flesh it out so much, my experiences, but I I dream things a lot. And not just dreaming like at night time, having dreams in your sleep space, but I have images and themes and motifs and symbols and indeed species that come to me a lot and hang around for a while. I don't know where it comes from and I I assume I act as if there's a message in it. So I was wondering to myself, what is this? If I'm dreaming the wild man, the hairy man, what is this? 
what does it mean to me? And I, I believe, you know, I've come to a pretty strong, albeit flexible, uh, position on what it means to me and what it means archetypically, symbolically, totemically. What is the totem of the wild man? What does it mean? What are the messages that it brings? So, um, yeah, here it is. This is the third and final installation of the series recorded at the Theosophical Society in Perth last year. Um, I also add other bits and pieces in. And again, like the other two, if you, uh, if you enjoy this and you're interested, I recommend you go to the Octarine Tree YouTube channel and watch the video because all the associated imagery and slides come along with it. You can't, well, you can do that on a podcast, but I'm too lazy. So just go to the YouTube channel if you're interested. Uh, I think that's all for now. Thanks very much for the feedback. I'm getting great positive feedback from all sorts of people regarding the podcast. The other day I was in the top five Australian podcasts uh, in the philosophy, under the philosophy banner downloaded, which is kind of cool, I think. Might be, maybe that's not a big deal, but it was uh, kind of cool. I was a bit tickled. Um, so thank you very much and please do reach out. I really enjoy hearing from anyone interested. I'm calling for people's requests or suggestions for guests. That would be great if anyone has any ideas on who would be a good fit as an interviewee for the Octarine Tree podcast. So without further ado, me and the mythopoetics of extra sapiens hominids. Enjoy. The following presentation is a work of fantastical exploration. I am making no claim that the subjects and ideas discussed within the work actually reflect reality. Not out of fear of ridicule, but for the sake of intellectual honesty. Because I myself don't even believe them. But that's beside the point. We either honor and express the ideas, visions and questions that come to us from the imaginal realm, by crafting them a vessel and releasing them to the wider world. Or we ignore them. Allowing them to build up within ourselves, metastasizing and moaning like half-formed wax and ghouls, adding to both personal and collective neurosis. No thanks. I prefer to practice psychic hygiene. So if you find yourself rolling your eyes a little too hard at this video, take a few deep breaths, loosen your tie, relax, and ask yourself. Have you ever had a dream that that you um you had you 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 could you do you you want you you could do so you you do you could you you want you want him to do you so much you could do anything? The mytho poetics of the wild man. Please make him welcome. G'day. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. This is my third time doing a talk. I really enjoyed the last two times that I was here. The last time I was here, I hinted at the Jungian and totemic symbolic meanings, potential meanings behind the what was called the wild man phenomena, the uh, phenomena of those beings that are known around the world as Yeti and Sasquatch and Yowie, all pretty kooky stuff. I actually went and did that. I sunk my teeth into that idea and sent myself half insane in the process. Uh, mythopoetic we'll go into in a bit more detail. The metaphysical is mainly speculative. 
and cryptozoological. Is anyone familiar with that term? It basically means the study of supposed animal species that are not recognised to science, right? And it goes through everything from, like, something really wacky like Mothman or the Loch Ness Monster through to the whole Sasquatch Yeti thing and all the way through to something like the Billy Ape, a proposed subspecies of giant chimpanzee that lives in the Congo, which they now actually think is legitimate. So yes, cryptozoological, that's speculative as well, but it's objective based on sanctioned natural science. So extra sapiens hominids. My friend Angie and I had a little bit of a chat yesterday, I think. I was trying to come up with the best term to describe these guys. What I mean by extra sapiens hominids is just that. Any member of the hominid family, which means any of the bipedal apes that have evolved since the chimpanzee and human last common ancestor split. Basically, it means humans and all our closest relatives, the Neanderthals, the Denisovans, Homo erectus, all of those going right back until the ancestors of humans and chimpanzees meet together. But I use the term extra sapiens hominids. Like, that's my term that I've just come up with to describe all of them except us, as you'll see why as I move on that I needed something like that to really define what I was talking about. For those who weren't here for the first two talks, I spoke a lot about the potential for these what I called relict hominids, potential relict populations of what were originally thought to be extinct hominids still existing, and that they may be what we know as the Sasquatch and the Yeti and the Yowie, that they are actually potentially these relict populations of previously thought extinct hominid species. And there was a whole two rants I did about that. Right, okay, cool. So the Sasquatch, the Yowie, the Yeti, what I have also referred to as the wild man or the hairy man, because the wild man is the term that's most often given to that phenomena around the world in traditional cultures. Uh, you translate the name of like Yeti or you know whatever local term you may find, and it will very likely, but not always, translate to wild man or something similar, hairy man, man of the forest, man of the mountains, that kind of thing. But that myth, the law of the wild man, is one of those ubiquitous myths you find around the world. So here's your wild man, your hairy man, and that's actually European. Something that I didn't mention in the last talks and most people don't realise, prior to the Great Plague, the Black Death, there was this very, very common motif in European culture and very often displayed in monastic texts and murals and manuscripts and in carvings on the church known as the woodwos or the green man which was just a very hairy, primitive, mute, strong, large, man-like creature. So one of these myths, the hairy man, the wild man, the seeding of earth from up there somewhere, in this case the Pleiades, which is in, in the southern hemisphere at least seems to be a really common motif. In the north there's a bit more of a reference to like Sirius and Orion and whatnot, but southern hemisphere they refer a lot to the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters features heavily even in Australian Indigenous culture, reference to the Seven Sisters. And the Great Flood, the Deluge, if you follow the work of the likes of um, Graham Hancock and others, 
Increasingly, it's looking like that myth is not myth, that there was a great deluge, approximately 10,500 BC, and the sea levels rose and, you know, there was great calamity and there was a serious kind of bottlenecking of human culture and, and genetics. And that's a whole different discussion. The younger Dryas impact theory. Yeah, right. It's, it's really gaining momentum now. And they, these are guys that are being laughed at 10 years ago. And now it's looking more and more likely. I mentioned this, so the fact that it is like one of these myths that you find collectively expressed around the world. It's one of the categories that my head puts this phenomena in because I'm an insomniac and I have an overactive mind, so I lay in bed staring at the roof at 3 a.m. in the morning, grinding my jaw, wondering what the hell is a Sasquatch? One of the categories I think of is this idea of the collective unconscious expressing itself in a very like Jungian way, which we go into more later. Could it just be something that it's inevitable that a human culture or an individual will express or feel or feel the embodiment of at some point in their life. I can see how that could be the case, so I have to consider that. The same with these. The idea of humans being seeded from some exotic hyper-intelligence from above, I can see how any culture could manufacture that narrative. And the same with the great myth, uh, the great flood. Okay, so... The exploration into mythopoetic mind, has anyone heard the term mythopoetics? It's coming back a bit now. It means of or relating to the making of myths, causing, producing or giving rise to myths. It's a hypothesised stage in the development of human thought, preceding modern thought. Uh, nowadays it's seen as oppositional to rationality and because of that it's dismissed and abandoned by contemporary psychotherapy and industrialised culture at large as outdated to the point of being taboo. It's really frowned upon now. It's almost, I've read some articles where they consider some schizoaffective disorders an inability for the adult mind to move out of the magical mind, like that of childhood. The inability to distinguish between the blendings of boundaries and all sorts of things. It's pre-reductionist science. It's holistic, symbolic and childlike. Jung used the term. I'm a huge fan of Jung. I am just very naturally Jungian-minded. I read a lot of his works pretty early when I was a teenager. I had to do an English assignment on, on a song, and it introduced me to Jungian terminology when I was about 15. The world hangs on a thin thread, and that is the psyche of man. Nowadays, we are not threatened by elementary catastrophes. There is no such thing as an H-bomb. That is all man's doing. Yeah. We are the great danger. The psyche is the great danger. What if something goes wrong with the psyche? Yeah. Yeah. See? And <clears throat> so, you see, it is demonstrated to us in our days what, what the power of the psyche is of man. How important it is to know something about it. But we know nothing about it. No, nobody would, uh, would give credit to, to the idea that uh, the psychical uh, uh, processes of the ordinary man have any importance whatever. One thinks, oh, he has just 
what he has in his head, it is all from his surrounding, he is taught such and such a thing, believes such and such a thing. And particularly if he is well housed and well fed, then he has no ideas at all. And that, that's the great mistake. Because he is just that as which he is born, and he is not born as Tabula Rasa, but, but as, as a reality. Jung writes, it is of course ironical that I, a psychiatrist, should be at almost every step of my experiment have run into the same psychic material which is the stuff of psychosis and is found in the insane. This is the fund of unconscious images which fatally confuse the mental patient, but it is also the matrix of a mythopoetic imagination which has vanished from our rational age. There's a lot in there. I would imagine some, if not most of you guys, are familiar with Jung. Yeah. Has anyone read The Red Book? It's one of the most important books of this century. The Jung family estate wouldn't let anyone see this book that Carl Jung had written called The Red Book or Liber Novus, the book of the new or the new book. Until about 2009 it was released and it was this incredible big doorstop tome, red, and he had painted the whole thing like a medieval manuscript and all of the text was calligraphy and he had spent hours upon hours on it. I think it was actually incomplete, some of the paintings, but it was a magnificent work of art. And what it actually did was explain and reveal what had happened to him way back when he was studying under Freud, I think in like around the time of the First World War. And you read his memoirs and he makes hints at what occurred to him. The keen reader and really adept, keen students of Jung's had picked up for a long time that something had occurred then and he wasn't really letting on. As it turns out, he went through a few years of intense visionary experience to the point of hallucination. He had an incredible capacity for visualising and for receiving imagery uh, in, a, in bizarre, rich, abstract, symbolic form. He then went on through his career to try and translate so essentially his entire career was him trying to come to terms with what he had experienced. And this red book is his testimony to that experience. I do suggest you have a look at it. And it's pretty rare. They only printed a few thousand copies distributed around the world. Jung cites this term mythopoetic and symbolic and the psychic realm and all these different things. He states how important it is to the human mind. In fact, he claims that the human mind is religious in nature. So he uses the term religious. Nowadays, people are a bit picky and they think that that term's been misused. But we are spiritual in nature. We seek greater meaning naturally. And if we don't actually have a mechanism to attach that to or a way to satiate that, it has deleterious effects on our psyche. And Modern Man in Search of a Soul was uh, a book that Jung read. Has anyone read that one? It, it goes into great detail on this particular subject. And you can see it nowadays. There is an impulse in people driving them back toward a search for greater, deeper meaning above and beyond the flat, dry, reductionist, strictly materialist, Descartian paradigm that we've been in for however many decades or centuries. It's done great things, like we've built all sorts of wonderful toys with it, you know, atom bombs and striped toothpaste and all of that, but it's left us actually quite unwell. 
So what some people have called the archaic revival, it's a renaissance of interest in things like shamanism, symbolism, occultism, psychoactive plants and fungi, paleoanthropology, Pleistocene studies. That's something that's really taking off. The Pleistocene was the period of time before what we are in now called the Holocene, before the late last ice age ended. And there's a huge emergence of interest in that period at the moment. That's a point I really want to drive home. According to Jung, and in my experience, I would agree with him, the human mind is hardwired somehow to expect and or yearn for, search for, a greater meaning. And not just searching for a greater meaning, but there is what Jung calls the mythopoetic, which is really bloody hard to articulate. And if we don't actually satiate that part of us, we'll make ourselves ill. And you can see it happening more and more around the world. The statements of every uh, religion and of many uh, uh, poets and so on are uh, uh, statements about the inner uh, um, mythological process which is a necessity because man is not complete if he is not conscious of uh, that aspect of things I'm of the opinion that the core root of the majority of the pathologies that we are seeing manifest around the world, psycho-spiritual pathologies, are caused at the root by a lack of meaningful connection between people and the planet, the earth, nature. And it's only recently occurred to me that it's not just that, it's a meaningful connection and acknowledgement of this connection to what they're yearning for, this mythopoetic realm which has been described in lots of different ways throughout time. Most cultures have some version of, or many versions of, an another realm, at least. There's the whole axis mundi idea, the above, the below. Many indigenous cultures, especially on this continent, speak of the dream time. That's a, just a fascinating topic in and of itself, what is dream time referring to. Astrological, hermetic, Western European magical tradition, psychoactive <laughs> no one here ever, ever tried DMT? Wrong crowd? <laughs> okay, never mind. Maybe I'll come back. That, that'll be my next talk. The, or, or the quantum realm, right? Just this idea that there are other channels that you can tune to, at least one, the other side, and that that is the source of and the font of the human imagination. That's the place from which we can tap into and extract or even be gifted from that side to this side contents and material that can inspire us and that we can work with and many of the ancients had a concept of that kind of mediating faculty within us that was called by the Greeks the, the daemon or the genius this idea of a messenger between the other realm and the individual from within the individual and not 
not just writers, but creative people across all genres, it seems, have this reputation for being enormously mentally unstable. Um, and you know, all you have to do is look at the very grim death count in the 20th century alone of, of really magnificent creative minds who died young and often at their own hands. You know, um, And even the ones who didn't literally commit suicide seem to be really undone by their gifts. You know, I've been sort of looking across time, and I've been trying to find like other societies to see if they might have had better and saner ideas than we have about how to help um, creative people sort of manage the inherent emotional risks of, um, of creativity. And that search has led me to ancient Greece and ancient Rome. People did not happen to believe that creativity came from human beings back then, okay? People believed that creativity was this divine attendant spirit that came to human beings from some distant and unknowable source for distant and unknowable reasons. The Greeks famously called these divine attendant spirits of creativity daemons. Socrates famously believed that he had a daemon who spoke wisdom to him from afar. The Romans had the same idea, but they called that sort of disembodied creative spirit a genius, um, which is great, because the Romans did not actually think that a genius was a particularly clever individual. They believed that a genius was this sort of magical divine entity um, who was believed to literally live in the walls of an artist's studio, kind of like Dobby, the house elf, um, and who would come out and sort of invisibly assist the artist with their work and would shape the outcome of that work, so brilliant. This is how people thought about creativity in the West for a really long time. And then the Renaissance came and everything changed and we had this big idea. And the big idea was let's put the individual human being at the center of the universe, right? Above all gods and mysteries and there's no more room for like mystical creatures who take dictation from the divine. And, and it's the beginning of rational humanism and um, people started to believe that creativity came completely from the self of the individual. And for the first time in history, you start to hear people referring to this or that artist as being a genius rather than having a genius. I had this encounter recently where I met the extraordinary American poet Ruth Stone, who's now in her 90s, but she's been a poet her entire life, and she told me that when she was growing up in rural Virginia, she would be out working in the fields, and she said she would like feel and hear a poem coming at her from over the landscape, and she said it was like a thunderous train of air, and it would come barreling down at her over the landscape, and when she felt it coming, because it would like shake the earth under her feet, she knew that she had only one one thing to do at that point, and that was to, in her words, run like hell. And she would like run like hell to the house, and she'd be getting chased by this poem. And the whole deal was that she had to get to a piece of paper and a pencil fast enough so that when it thundered through her, she could collect it. And, um, and grab it on the page. And other times, she wouldn't be fast enough, so she'd be like running and running and running, and the, she wouldn't get to the house, and the poem would like barrel through her, and she would miss it, and she said it would continue on across the landscape, looking, as she put it, for another poet. I've written here, the honoring of the daemon or genius, the listening to it, making it manifest in material realm by expressing the motif, brings psychic hygiene. It's something that we've completely pushed away. That might not have great repercussions on many people, but there are certain individuals, for whatever reason, that it's their job, it's their role, it's their destiny, their blessing or their curse, depending on how you look at it. Their volume on that message is turned up a little bit louder. It appears that most people in our contemporary industrialised culture can get away with ignoring it or not even knowing it exists or sweeping under the carpet. And I do believe that they're affected by it, but they can sweep it under the carpet. 
I think there are others who are so affected by it that they go completely neurotic to the point of psychotic. And I think that a lot of the things that we call psychological and psychiatric pathology has a lot to do with this. Although, you know, I'm not a doctor. Psychic hygiene is not necessarily like a psychic protection type. No, not a protection. It's literally a hygiene maintenance, brushing your teeth. All form requires maintenance, right? If it's born, it will die. And in between, you have to give it a few coats of paint. But we don't do that. We have no concept of psychic hygiene in our culture. And these things build up. And it doesn't have to be some big traumatic event or series of them that will build up and accumulate and affect you negatively. It can just be small day-to-day things. It's like you were watching the news and you saw something disturbing. And then you changed the channel and didn't think about it again. It still went in. Or, you know, you had an argument with a loved one and said something cold and harsh to them, harsher than you think, and you walk out the door and you don't even think about it again. That sense of regret or whatever is still sitting with you. And these things build up and build up and build up like a plaque. And in the ancient world, they had the mechanics of that kind of understood and they had uh, remedies in place. You know, and that's a whole discussion as to what they were. We don't even recognise the ontological strata of psychic phenomena. You know, so no wonder we're all going cuckoo. Not all, present company excluded, of course. (laughs) And again, as you'll see, this is a common theme amongst these slides, abandoned by industrialised culture. Another thing that is abandoned by industrialised culture are the many other forms of sensing, knowing and sense-making. It's funny because as I was driving here, I was thinking to myself... What am I even talking about Like when I get there? I have no idea what I've gone and done. I don't know what this PowerPoint presentation is. And on the radio came on about the different means and mechanisms of knowing that we've abandoned. I was like, oh, yeah, right, okay, that's it, yep. Proprioception is this one in particular. Proprioception is just kind of bodily feedback. You know, your position and movement and velocity and trajectory of your body in space. You know, just your body in space. It's really simple. But by God is it profound when you really kind of meditate upon it. And it's very much attached to the animal body. You know, there's nothing really cerebral about it. But it is incredibly intelligent. It's tied to the immediate experience. No middleman or interpretation required. I like that. This chap here, Terence McKenna, he says, and what is the primary datum? It's the felt presence of immediate experience. In other words, being here now is the primary datum. And we've gone and thrown that baby out with the bathwater as well. And I think that as well has a lot to do with healing, the collective healing process. It's that we're not aware that our reality is constructed by two different systems, if you like, which focus on different aspects of reality and therefore construe a world with different qualities. And the first part of the book explains that in terms of neuropsychiatry and philosophy. And the second part of the book suggests that in the history of the West, um, three times we have been in a position where, to begin with, a civilization flourished when it kept both these visions together, that of the right hemisphere and that of the left. But that in every case, and I believe we're repeating the pattern for the third time, uh, as uh, the, the, the civilization overreached itself, 
um, things deteriorated and the mindset became more rigid, more bureaucratic, less imaginative, less flexible, less in touch with reality and became locked into a way of thinking which is that of the left hemisphere, which is useful. Uh, it's not um, a mistake that we have it, but it cannot be our way of contacting reality. A simple way of putting it is it's like uh, mistaking the map for the territory. Morphic resonance. Has anyone here heard of Rupert Sheldrake and morphic resonance? It's like one of two TED Talks that were banned. Um, because he spoke about his idea of uh, morphic resonance and the morphogenetic field. So morphogenetic field suggests that, and this is him here on the right of the picture some years ago with Terence McKenna again and Ralph Abraham. And they have these amazing series of discussions at the Esalen Centre in California. I think he's a biologist by trade and he's moved on to express his own very interesting ideas. And in the middle, Ralph Abraham, who's a chaos mathematician, this chap here, Terence McKenna, the morphogenetic field and morphic resonance suggests that all biological forms, plants, fungi, animals, etc., have a unique energetic signature held within the Earth's morphogenetic field. This extra physical architecture actualizes not only as a species physical biological form, but also as a behavioral model that they by necessity inhabit, embody, and express with, in most cases, next to no room for deviation. It's their programming. And at the signature of all species and varieties ever existing on Earth are permanently housed in this archive, even after the event of physical extinction. I think he made claims that could not be scientifically verified using the you know, methods of science. I can't remember. I looked into it. It's worth a look. And now we're going to talks on why. Right. He's now made a living talking about why Ted wouldn't let him talk. <laughs> and then let him back in. The Anthropos, or the Adam Cadmon. The human being, a specific form of metabiological vessel, allowing spirit to inhabit, navigate, and manipulate aspects of reality within the material realms and beyond. Note that this is a matter of metabiological technology and not of speciesism or human superiority. It's a whole discussion. Unlike other biological forms, and this is, this is where it ties into the morphic resonance business, unlike other biological forms, Homo sapiens has no strict driving behavioural model. In fact, they create models through faculties that enable them to move beyond the limitations of a usually restricted architecture. Via their connection with the psychic realm, call it what you will, the, that other side, the quantum field, da-da-da-da, they can employ imagination, conceiving of new concepts, projecting and sharing them via speech and various other psychic faculties, and through the creative process, massage them into physical and cultural reality. In doing so, making manifest entirely new forms with the greater purpose of further injecting the divine into the material realm. This is the important bit. A danger lies in the strong and historically evident propensity for sapiens to identify with their models and confuse them for reality itself, ideology, fanaticism, and delu other delusions. So this idea that the human species does differ in many ways from any other species on the planet. We do. There's a number of different ways that we do. 
One of the main ways that I would suggest is that other species to a greater degree are bound and restricted to their behavioural models. A whale can't play fox, right? And a fox can't play turtle. They're bound to it. They've got to do what they've got to do. There are certain species and usually mammals that can be trained to do certain things. So there is a little bit of give and take in certain other species. But humans, we have no model. Well, there is a base kind of architecture, but there is extreme flexibility. It's like saying, is this computer, is this a PowerPoint computer or is this a Word document computer? It's like it can be anything it wants. It's extremely flexible and programmable. We are extremely flexible and programmable. We don't have such a strong model. We actually create models. And it's our ability to get lost in those models. We can, the danger is that we confuse those abstractions for reality itself and do a lot of damage in the process. Okay, totemic symbolism, what is it? Uh, accessible within the potentials of the Sapien software are aspects of all the major behavioural models expressed by other Gaian species. These sub-archetypes can be perceived as character types and are frequently expressed as animal totems within traditional Sapiens cultures. In these systems, non-human beings are not seen as inferior or superior, rather they are considered elder siblings, teachers and templates. In the past, when Sapiens had a far deeper appreciation for the reality of the mythopoetic realm, these aspects were more organised and described using complex symbolic language, so-called divinatory systems such as astrology, alchemy, Kabbalah, etc., heightened people's symbolic literacy and energetic fluency. So this idea that these animals, as an expression of guy and consciousness, actually have their own models of behaviour, which are an expression of guy and being. That each of them is, a, is an extension and expression of particular facets of the Gaian being. And humans have the capacity to express them and to feel those and embody them. And they are expressed through totemic symbolism in many cultures. Okay, indigenous and American law regarding Sasquatch. We're finally on to my pal Sasquatch. Countless Native American tribes make reference to and name a being that fits the contemporary description of Sasquatch. Within the cosmology of these cultures, these beings are categorised both alongside other flesh and blood species, but they also exhibit metaphysical characteristics possessing some form of extra normal psychic capacity. They are attributed their own totemic meaning. All of the, that, these masks and these paintings are depicting Sasquatch although different tribes have different names for them. These beings, they, they hold a special place in the kind of ontology of many of the tribes. So on the one hand, they will explain and express the Sasquatch in with the other flesh and blood animals. They will say that, no, it is, it's an animal. It, it bleeds, it eats, whatever. But it also displays some really interesting extra, like metaphysical capacities as well, so it's very hard to place. It's worth noting that Indigenous law is often cloaked in layers of interpretation with each new layer offered as an individual ascends through grades of initiation. So just because you are introduced to an idea in an initiation process, it doesn't mean that's it. 
And it doesn't mean that face value needs to be necessarily considered the only value. And I just like to keep that in mind when I think about things like this. Common Indigenous American totemic interpretations often referred to as an elder brother, our closest relative, husband of earth, and a messenger warning of disconnection to earth. It's called The Husband of the Earth by Joe Flying By from the Lakota. Ray Owen from the Dakota, he says, he, Sasquatch, is our big brother. He looks out for us. We were going downhill, really self-destructive. We needed a sign to put us back on track. And that's why the big man appeared. Ralph Greywolf says, they make an appearance at troubled times to help troubled Indian communities get back in touch with Mother Earth. Bigfoot brings signs or messages that there is a need for change, a need to cleanse. And the Ojibwe say that the Ragaru, or the Sasquatch, appears in symptoms of danger or psychic disruption to the community. In the following clip, the bard McKenna waxes poetically on a Jungian interpretation of the UFO phenomena. As you listen, we invite you to employ your noetic faculty of conceptualization by imagining that he was instead speaking to the Wildman phenomena. What, 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 what? To my mind, no one has really gone beyond Jung. He understood very clearly that uh, saying that something is a denizen of the psychic realm no way precludes it's also having uh, efficacious force in the physical realm through the phenomenon which he called synchronicity. In looking at the effect, not asking the question, what is it, but what does it do, you very quickly see what the flying saucers are doing. What they are doing is eroding faith in science. They are an antidote to the scientific paradigm that has evolved over the past 400 years and which has led us to the brink of global catastrophe. So the notion being developed here is that within the structure of the human psyche there is something like a governor, something like a monitoring circuit which when a society begins to evolve in a pathological or lethal direction phenomena can be induced not by the egos of men and women, not by their institutions, but by the overmind, the, the collectivity of the human species, phenomena can be induced which are so corrosive to the ideologies currently in place that their underpinnings are cut away, their validity is called into question, and their programs for social development and control are invalidated and destroyed. Now, a perfect example of this is the rise of infant Christianity. If you'll cast your mind back to the situation in uh, the early years of the Christian era uh, and imagine the mentality of a Roman aristocrat, a person of power in Roman society, their physics is drawn from Democritean atomism. Uh, in other words, they are thoroughgoing materialists. Their social theory is drawn from Epictetus and Plato. They are, in fact, 
extremely modern people by our own standards. However, among the gardeners and kitchen help and stable boys, there is news of a momentous event in the Middle East. A Jewish rabbi has triumphed over death and risen after three days in the tomb. Should the master of a Roman household have caught wind of this kind of uh, uh, superstitious talk among the help, he would have just dismissed it with a sneer. What a preposterous idea. And it is a preposterous idea. Nevertheless, the fact that an idea is preposterous has never held it back from making zealous converts. And within 120 years after the annunciation of the birth of Christianity, its missionaries were beating on the gates of Rome attempting to convert the emperor. Now I see a similar situation in the modern context that rationalism, scientific technology, which began and came out of uh, the scholasticism of the Middle Ages and the quite legitimate wish to glorify God through an appreciation of his natural world, turned into a kind of demonic pact, a kind of descent into the underworld, a nekeia, if you will, leading to the present cultural and political impasse that involves massive stockpiles of atomic weapons, huge propagandized populations cut off from any knowledge of their real histories, uh, male-dominated organizations plying their message of uh, lethal destruction and inevitable historical advance. And into this situation comes suddenly an anomaly, something which cannot be explained. I believe that that is the purpose of the UFO, to inject uncertainty into the male-dominated, paternalistic, rational, solar myth under which we are suffering. What I'm saying is that the UFO is nothing more than an assertion of herself by the goddess into history, saying to science and paternalistically uh, governed and driven organizations, you have gone far enough. So one interpretation, well, my kind of Jungian interpretation is one of a stoic masculine earth symbol, a symbol of the need to remedy a lack of meaningful connection to the earth, a being that carries the totemic meaning of connection to the felt experience, a symbol of and possibly an actual sapiens-like being that while possessing a highly evolved form of intelligence still clearly perceives, embodies and expresses the truth of natural law free from the abstractions of the neocortical higher mind. <laughs> I, I sometimes kind of like just listen to myself talking th this stuff and have to laugh. What is our place in nature? Since the scientific revolution, this question has been answered dualistically. Nature is explicable as mechanism or matter, and humans are matter plus mind. Western philosophy continues to struggle with, the mind, with how mind relates to matter, or in another idiom, 
how human culture relates to human, non-human nature. But dualism, I'd like to argue today, is not just a philosophical problem. It's a product of our human history. Think about the invention of agriculture, the rise of cities, the Industrial Revolution, the Information Age. All of these things have resulted in separating humans from our natural environments. As we humans have become separate from nature, we've become a destructive force of nature. The Anthropocene demands a new ethical practice, an ecological ethics that can reach beyond the human. Anthropology, the study of humans, should be the best discipline to understand the Anthropocene, the age of humans. But because it studies humans in terms of what makes us unique, it separates humans and our culture from the rest of nature, and in that way perpetuates dualism. What we share with nature is not our biological bodies, but the fact that with all other beings think. We share with other beings mind, not matter. A thinking forest is not a metaphor. There are others out there representing us and interpreting our actions, and these beings are not necessarily human. What we share with other living beings is thought. The realization, and this realization calls for a very different kind of anthropology, a very different vision of anthropos. And when we think together, we become one together, even when these others are radically different. What kind of thinking does a forest do? How does it relate to the kind of thinking we humans do? I want you to enter the forest and feel this kind of thinking. Any being that interprets a sign is thinking. And this is a form of thinking that we can enter. Ecologies of mind. Life is made up of signs. Biology is a sign process. Evolutionary and ecological dynamics are intrinsically and constitutively representational. Think, for example, of the evolution of bird wings. Over evolutionary time, wings come to represent the air currents against which they flap. They are pictures of air, thoughts about the world. A wing is a living thought. Life is a form of thinking. This quality is amplified to an unprecedented degree in tropical forests, which are built up of complex co-evolutionary networks of organisms representing each other. A tropical forest houses a lot of thoughts. Ecology is mind. The bodies of some insects have come to represent twigs. You could say that these insects are embodied thoughts about the world. You could also say that there's now more twigginess in the world. Twigs are twiggy, but so too are some insects. I call the kind of thinking that forests do sylvan, as in sylvatic, savage, sauvage wild. Sylvan thinking is wild thinking. It's the kind of thinking that forests do. Sylvan thinking is absential. Sylvan thinking is also playful. Play, the momentary suspension of determinism, function, and purpose, is central to the life of thought. Sylvan thinking is also imagistic. Images are a kind of sign that represents through likeness, and they too are essential to the life of thought. Any future instantiation of a phasmid is a likeness of a previous one, in the same way that your son or daughter are, like, are likenesses of you, right? There's likeness in life. Now, I want to say that we, too, think like forests. For example, when we dream. 
Dreaming has its own kind of sylvan logic. It too, it's an effortless form of thinking through likeness. As such, it too is absential, playful, and imagistic. How we dream is how the forest thinks. Ecology is mind, but our minds are also an ecology. We usually think of mind in human terms, and for good reasons. Human's thought is special. We humans are a symbolic species. With symbolic thought, we can reflect on the contents of our thought. That gives us abstraction. We can reflect on the process of our thoughts, which gives us consciousness. We can reflect on the effects our thoughts have on others, gives us ethics. We can also reflect on radical absences, histories, futures, fictions, fantasies, counterfactuals. All of these things make human thinking unique. Symbolic separation is our blessing, but also our curse. When we humans become too separate from the world, we go crazy. And this propensity for craziness is inherent to our linguistic or symbolic capabilities. Panic, I want to suggest, is the feeling of what it's like to, to fully live a Cartesian mind-body split. The cure for me was very simple. What happened is that I was regrounded in an ecology of mind that was able to go outside of my ecology of mind. And this allowed me to find a way to be both connected to the world and appreciate myself as emergent from it. For me, at least, expresses the sense of what it's like to be both grounded and emergent at the same time. And that's, I think, what we're striving for as the kind of human we need to be in this time. Our increasing separation from nature is crazy-making. The Anthropocene has fostered a kind of collective madness infecting our ecology of mind. I've tried to convince you that forests think, and they can think themselves through us when we engage with them and their sylvan logics. The Runa recognize the thinking plants and animals of the forest, but they also recognize the spirits of the forest, the masters of the animals. The Runa, in short, recognize the forest's animacy. They are, you could say, animists. Animistic thinking, of course, doesn't really fit well with the kind of thinking we usually do, state thinking. We all live in states in some way or another. State thinking is top-down, conventional and law-driven, systematic, bureaucratic, you could say symbolic. But in 2008, the Ecuadorian state, the Runa live in Ecuador, of course, the Ecuadorian state rewrote its constitution to recognize that nature has rights. And this is an opening for an ethics of sylvan thinking. And yet Ecuador today, under a neo-extractivist policy, is exploiting this very nature to an unprecedented degree. In response, forest spirits through dreams and ayahuasca visions have been telling runa shamans that the forests that house them are in trouble. So I want to conclude with the following question. What would happen if we were to take those forest spirits seriously? How might what we've learned anthropologically about sylvan thinking change how we think about conservation and sustainable growth? I would like to suggest something very simple, that it can help us appreciate that our, that our, our end as conservationists, philanthropists, should not be to conserve a kind of thing, but to hold open a space for a way of thinking, one that is essential, playful, and imagistic. This is the kind of thinking we need to rediscover and nurture in the Anthropocene.
the mind of the extra sapiens hominids, the reality of this cultural paleoanthropology. I, actually, I made a video about it as well. It's kind of cool. The sapiens mind, and when I say sapiens, I, of course, I'm referring to homo sapiens as differentiated from other hominid species. The sapiens mind evolved to expect a world co-inhabited by non-sapiens, yet sapiens-like beings. But once upon a time, if you turn back the clock, like 100,000 years, 150,000 years, there were numerous non-sapiens hominid species inhabiting the earth, and in many cases co-inhabiting the same regions, but just occupying different niches. Big ones, like big, robust, cold-adapted super predators, little diminutive, three-foot-tall at you know maturity, some that were semi-arboreal, all sorts, like totally different species, not just different races or ethnicities, but different species. And the world that that actually created, the human experience that that actually facilitated, just blows my mind to think it was real. I, in this video, I liken it to a, a Tolkien novel or a fantasy novel. The contemporary sapiens mind has virtually no relevant current experience to prepare for the reality of the extra sapiens hominid. So we are actually genetically and in a deep racial mind sense, we are actually hardwired for a world where there are these extra sapiens species around, but our contemporary culture has no place to, to put that. There is nowhere for that to kind of that software to actualize. We currently categorize sapiens as collective self, animals as collective other, with perhaps the great apes as the only existing gray area. We just, we don't have the ability to, to perceive what, imagine what it would actually be like to witness an extra sapiens hominid walking. A very, very simple thing. If you could turn back the clock or we could magic one here now, and we had a species like Paranthropus boisei, which is my favorite, called Nutcracker Man, huge sagittal crest for these big jaw muscles because you could just chew on anything, vegetarian. And if we right now watched one walking across here, your, our minds wouldn't know what to do with it. If you could watch your mind watching that being walking, it would be a fascinating thing to do. It would be a glitching. Your brain would go, okay, uh, human? I'm just going to put that in the human category. But there would be all these subtle differences happening to confuse you. Different people's got different powers of perception. So one person might see a Sasquatch and another one in the same place not see it. Yeah, I've heard indigenous Australian mob on a number of occasions say that they see them fairly often, but white fellas won't see them. And or the Yowie won't show themselves to the white fella. So, you know, does the Yowie have agency as to who does and doesn't perceive them? Or is it a matter of the white fella not having the sharpened psychic tools to perceive? So there's all these potentials. As in hypnotism, uh, a mind... Perhaps we've just, we've blunted our equipment. We need to squeegee our third eye. Just as we wonder at the extra sapiens hominids physical morphology, so should we be awed by the possibilities, implications of their mind, consciousness, and cultures. Their varied forms of consciousness are just as valid as ours. I say are, were, are, just as valid as ours, yet adapted to different niches, different expressions 
of human genius. This has been blowing my mind lately at 3 a.m. staring at the roof. <laughs> the, the, the way in which a non-sapiens hominid species, the way their, their mind would work and their culture and their character. Because once upon a time, we portrayed them all as brutish troglodytes. But increasingly, the evidence is suggesting that at least some of the, the species were actually very sophisticated. This is a green stone bracelet that was found in a cave in Siberia around 2009, I think, that has a hole drilled through it that was made using a steady state drill. So not one of these, you know, there was a mechanism to keep the drill going straight with consistent rotations. And that's dated at approximately 70,000 years ago. So if you know anything about the conventional chronology of history and human evolution, to have that happening 70,000 years ago is in and of itself means for a massive rethink. That was the Denisovan species. So they were a Neanderthal-like species, not sapiens. They were a different species to sapiens. And we didn't know anything about them. We didn't know they existed until this cave was explored and they found a whole bunch of bones. One of them was the tip of the pinky finger. Like of all the bones that got eventually taken to the lab, they're like, it's Neanderthal, let's, just, let's go and map, the, map its genome and see what's up. It wasn't Neanderthal. It was a completely different species of hominid, hominid known as Denisovan. And since then we've discovered that they interbred with Homo sapiens and the Australasian, Melanesian peoples have like a 4 or 5% Denisovan admixture in their, their genome. It's fascinating. Okay, has anyone read Clan of the Cave Bear? In this series, uh, the author Jean M. All, I think it's pronounced All, I don't know how you'd pronounce A-U-E-L, All. It's set, I think, about 50,000 years ago in Eastern Europe, and there's a young Homo sapiens girl who's orphaned, and she's, she's fostered by a family, a clan of Neanderthals, and it goes into her story of how she's raised by them, and it's quite incredible. I, the author did an amazing job at inventing the mind and culture of, a, of an extra sapiens hominin, the Neanderthal. The Neanderthal brain here, have on the left are the skull, and on the right, the sapiens. So they actually had a bigger brain capacity than us on average. Average adult human brain is something like 1,400 cubic centimetres, and theirs was like 1,700. They had bigger brains than us. But relative to us, they had a developed occipital bun at the back and a less developed prefrontal cortex. And sapiens is the other way around. So the occipital bun houses the mammalian brain in the back here, which generates and supports things like intuition, social behaviour, visualisation, that kind of thing. Whereas on the other hand, the sapiens has the diminished occipital bun and an augmented prefrontal cortex, which supports attention, short-term memory, planning, innovation, logic. The Neanderthals in the book, as described by all now, this is just her model, and I, I'm just using this as a model. This is not to say that this is how they were. It's just one woman's work of fiction. The Neanderthals were largely mute, 
They communicated a lot through gesticulation, the odd grunt and groan, but they also had a great psychic capacity. So it was like a combination of gesticulation and psychic interaction. And they had this amazing magical mindedness and this incredible collective memory. It was a genius move on her behalf, the way she portrayed them as... So like, you know, animals, they have their instinct, right? And yes, there is a degree of culture within certain animals. Different herds of buffalo have slightly different behaviours and that is a legitimate culture. But largely, these animals are born knowing what to do, at least relative to humans. Again, we're programmable. We don't have a model. We have to be taught. The Neanderthals in this story, they have this kind of in-between where there's a collective memory they can tap into and they just have to be shown. Like they get shown once. One of the elders goes, kind of reminds them, this is how we do that, remember? And then it's in. They've got it. It's downloaded. It's fascinating. So as opposed to the Neanderthals, we use more verbal language. Our senses are focused on materiality. We have diminished instincts. We create cultural models and we need to be taught. Now, I'll mention this very briefly. I have, an, I have a theory that one of the reasons that saw Homo sapiens as the last ape standing and assisted in the eradication of the extra sapiens hominids was our symbiotic relationship with dogs. So we, de- we evolved and developed down this more kind of cerebral pathway of diminished instinct as per the, the last slide, but we had dogs and they could kind of make up for all of that, the real animal like heightened senses of smell and sight and hearing and all the rest. But I'll move on from that, I won't go too much into it. So there's this pattern within indigenous law, and I'm nearly done, five minutes and I'll hand it over to you, you guys. This pat- there's a pattern within indigenous law around the world of these beings being, yes, most definitely physical, but also showing signs of being able to either bleed in and out of material reality and or affect our perception of material reality. Extra sapiens hominids retain a full body intelligence. They have a genius level understanding of the environment. There is this work, this guy, I think it's Christopher Noel online, Can you imagine my salivating glee when I discovered there was this guy doing research into Sasquatch consciousness as per this huge data bank of sightings and interactions and that he's mapped all of the like phenomena and traits of Asperger's kids and Sasquatch. It sounds wacky, but it is wacky, but it's really worth a look into if you find this interesting. When I was up in Broome years and years and years ago, it was when the discovery of the little hobbits, the little skeletons of the hobbits, Homo floresiensis, were discovered in a cave on the island of Flores, just off Timor. And I got talking one day to a local indigenous bloke, and I think it was in a magazine I was reading, and I said, you look what they've just discovered. There's these skeletons of these little humans that live just off the Australian coast because Flores is actually, geologically speaking, an Australian island. Politically, it's Indonesian. Geologically, it's Australian. And he's got, oh, yeah, yeah, it's the little people, the little fellas. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, yeah, we got them here on the mainland. They're in, you know, deep country where we don't go. And I said, 
hang on, you mean there's actually, you believe that? Because I'd heard the stories of it. And he, he like was tapping the magazine where there's the skeleton and the recreation of this little hominid. And he said, look, when we tell you that there are little hairy people running out about deep country, it's not a f***ing metaphor. And that was actually when this started for me, this interest, I was like, oh, hang on a minute. Okay, that's interesting. It's not just pure fantasy now. There, it's actually within the realm of scientific plausibility that they at least could have been these diminutive human relatives running around on the Australian mainland at some point, and they could have burnt themselves into the cultural mind and myth-making apparatus of the locals, and or maybe there's a relict population or two roaming around. Anyway, it got the wheels churning. They're, they're pretty scary, let me tell you. You know, you've, you're out in the bush and you could hear these things, you know, walking around. You never see them but you could hear them. And uh, they got a real piercing whistle. You know, who are you worried about? <laughs> and you know they're around. And uh, mum used to say, well, make a fire or a light. They won't come around where, where they could, you know, where there's any light and that. They'd go away and leave you alone and that. But uh, yeah, you know, there's things that we was taught and that out in the bush, out at, uh, well, the Noongars call it Bojan Rock, and the white people call it Boygen. But uh, you ask the Noongar and he'll say Bojan, that's Bojan Rock. And uh, that, that's where the Mamaris are. But there's two or three names they call it, Mamari, Bayat, or Wirdachi. <laughs> They're all the, all the same things they are. But, the little uh, guys. Well, yes, they, they reckon they're little guys, <laughs> <laughs> little airy fellows. So, so the oldies, oldies used to tell us, you know, don't go out to Bojan with little kids because they'll sometimes, you know, make them pretty sick and uh, maybe they might, they might carry them away. Well, as I said, you've got to make a fire, you know, have plenty of smoke and that and a bit of light and that, and they, they sort of won't come around in your camps and that or wherever you're staying. I was speaking to someone, I can't tell you the full story yet because I didn't get permission in time and I don't want to tell the story without permission because it, it's just important. I was speaking to someone and this topic came up and just trust me when I say that they have reason to think that there is something to what they're saying. I said, little people, oh yeah, okay, what do you know about them? It's like, yeah, look, it's in all the story, all the lore, there's little hairy people running around deep bush and they're a trickster type. And then I said, okay, so what, like, and th this is my mind trying to go, where do I fit this? Okay, what are they? And he goes, little hairy people. I go, like flesh and blood hairy people. He's like, look, yeah, like little hairy people, kind of weird looking kind of aggro, like they can get aggro, like you don't mess with them, they can hurt you, and um, they're little people. I was like, okay, yeah, okay, well, cool. So flesh and blood, little person. Because in my head, the little people is so often like the European version of the wee folk. You know, they're all like frolicking around in green velvet overalls, you know, f f 
f flashing in and out of reality, this idea of children snatching and people falling asleep for a long time and waking up disoriented. And I kind of, I wanted to know, okay, where do they sit? Are they a little flesh and blood potential relic hominid species? Or are they kind of the pot of gold under the leprechaun and fairies and gnomes and right? Not to say that I have any idea what the hell they are, but I was trying to, this is my over-rational mind. So I've gone, oh, okay, cool, cool, flesh and blood. And then he said to me, oh, and they're shapeshifters. It's like, you can't do that. It's one or the other, man. But he went on to say that they disguise themselves as a rock or a bush or a log or something to evade detection. And I thought to myself, oh, okay, what if that's it? Like, what if there are entities out there with their human-like but not human, highly evolved intelligent biological minds displaying genius in all sorts of bizarre forms that we can't get a grip on or we have but we have lost because of our rejection of certain things, connection to the earth, felt experience, the mythopoetic realm, all of this stuff. And there they are with their bloody occipital buns or God knows what other parts and lobes of their brain they have hyperdeveloped. And what if they do have a psychic capacity to like jam our signal? What if they use psychism as like a... I can't believe I'm saying this. What if, what if Bigfoot uses psychism as a magical defence? Psychism can be emotional as well. So like, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of David Pilates, Missing 411. Yeah, I, I, it's a lot. ties in a lot because there's shape-shifting possibly in that of all yeah. these people. That, that stuff's very, creepy. This sort of stuff could definitely be using those types of things to hide from, especially, you know, um, don't mean to put this in a racist term, but the white mind or the Western mind, the... Industrialised mind. Industrialised mind, yeah, that's a better term. It's the one I use to stay out of trouble because I get accused of all sorts of shit. Yeah, breaking everything down, like you said, into boxes, that's what we, mm -hmm. we do. Um, that's what we're taught, so it's very hard, but I think that's exactly what they do. Yeah. Potentially, these extra sapien hominids are psychically developed and have an innate access to and command of the psychic realm like we do to a capacity as well. But just as we differ physically from them, we also differ in consciousness and psychic capacity. Because potentially not just one species. I mean, prehistorically, we know there were dozens of species. There may be more out and about than we know about. And their toolkits could vary a great deal. They may perceive sapiens as threat and employ psychic capacity to evade us by jamming our psychic signal. I mean, if psychically... You were always walking around looking at a phone, distracted. Yes. I was just thinking about um, fairy stories. People of my generation know all about the fairy stories. And they would have been told for thousands and thousands of years. And a few things that you learned was a consciousness of nature spirits. When you look at the Lord of the Rings series, those sort of people populate all the stories that have come down to it. And so you have to think that there may well have been people who actually looked like that and were very different, but it was so long ago now that there may not be any trace. Thank you. I've done a whole video. We were living in a world where there were all these non-sapiens, but sapiens-like beings, for a start. And then secondly, as, as well as they do to recreate 
the physical morphology, the soft tissue. We can guess and where we have mapped the genome, Neanderthals, etc., we have a better idea. But there are other species that we have no idea what they look like. And they could possibly have looked very different to where we thought they would. And I suggest in this video that it's in part one of the reasons why as a species we have this preoccupation with fantastical anthropomorphic non-human entities is because our brain is hardwired to expect them because we co-evolved with them. A point worth mentioning. One assumption that is always made when humans discuss or explore the subject of extra sapiens hominids, is that regardless of the many potential forms and consciousness that all different species may have had, or still have, we always assume that we, homo sapiens must be the most gracile, most advanced, least ape-like. This may not be the case. What if there was once, or perhaps still is? an as yet unrecognized species of hominid, native to the earth, whose form, features and mind are even less similar to archaic hominids than us sapiens are. The mind boggles. And yet, to one of your earlier points, there are a lot of similarities between the fey wee folk of Europe and the little hairy guys that run around like an ability to shapeshift or to blend in and out with their environment. There is a connection to taking kids as well with the little hairy hominid chappies in various cultures around the world, Australian, Indonesian, Polynesian. One thing is they all appear to be male and the other thing is are they fearful of them? They're not always male. Quite a few of the North American mythologies and terms are, are feminine like mother of the forest, and referred to the whole species as, as female. And funnily enough, I showed on my first talk what was called the Patterson-Gimlin film. You'd all know it. It was, you know, Ripley's Believe It or Not core content back in the 80s and 70s. It was that shaky footage of a so-called Sasquatch in California, which they've since been able to hyper-stabilise, and even just the last year they've come out with even more stabilised um, footage from it and I tell you once you know what to look for you, if it's a person in a suit then it, they deserve an academy award because it's absolutely incredible and that entity that being perhaps it's the suit but whatever it is it's got breasts on it and of course if they're a biological entity then there has to be male and female but culturally they're often described as female and are they scared of them there's often a considerable trepidation the spectrum goes from like downright terror because in some cultures and some places around the world they're considered very violent. The Australian Yowie is actually, if reports are anything to go by historically, way more violent than like say the Sasquatch would be because then it goes from downright terror of them up through to a you know trepidation to a kind of curiosity but I don't know of many reports or historical accounts or traditional lore of them hanging out and high-fiving and being buddies or anything. Once upon a time this stuff was just easily dismissed and laughed at despite the fact that there is accounts going back through colonial era in Australia, America, other places and then back further into native traditional lore. Right, But now we've entered this age where every bastard's got a mobile phone with a camera on it and the democratisation of 
video audio software to be able to really look into what's going on. This stuff is incredible. If you're interested, there's a YouTube site called Thinkathunker, and this guy's like a video audio specialist, and he breaks down all of the supposed proposed Sasquatch and similar um, videos, and he, he finds some really interesting stuff. Look, I want to thank you for a wonderful presentation. I think you've really brought a lot of questions to light, and I think it's been so well researched, and with all the magic and mystery, uh, I do think the human mind has got a lot to do with it, and you'd be amazed what we can create in mm. our own realm, and I think those mysteries are still to be discovered and very much disputed by the scientists. But on the whole, I think this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for it. Thank you for indulging us so. Besides Byron's delusional ranting, you have also heard audio excerpts from the following. The World Within. C.G. Jung in his own words, from Psychology Library. Matter of Heart. The classic documentary on C.G. Jung. Your elusive creative genius. TED Talk by Elizabeth Gilbert. Lost Ways of Knowing. Ian McGilchrist on Rebel Wisdom. UFO as Oversoul of the Species. Terence McKenna. Mummeries and Fire. Laurie Collard with Wheat Belt NRM. How Forests Think and How Magic Works. Eduardo Cohn for Stavros Niarchos Foundation. Thank you for your valued custom. You are a target market.